morning, everyone. And uh, welcome to those who are watching online as well. Our thanks to uh, Calvin and Heidi and Amanda McNeil and our praise team and Lazarus Stoltz on guitar as well. Uh, praise God for worship, leading us in worship. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. You are totally other. You are beyond us, much greater than any one of us. And yet you know the hairs on our head besides calling out the stars by name. Lord, we just can't fathom how great you are. Lord, uh, be pleased to speak to us now as we meditate on your word and uh, just help our lives to be more holy as a result, not just here in this building or in our living room or wherever we're watching, but Lord, out there on the street and in the workplace, let us uh, reflect you. Lord, help us to be the body of Christ as we reflect on him this Worldwide Communion Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. It's Worldwide Communion Sunday. Communion, basically in a non-religious sense, means having something in common, taking part in a similar experience. There's a oneness shared by multiple people. For Christians, we find this oneness in Jesus, who has torn down the walls that tend to separate and divide people on account of differences in gender or background or temperament. Envy and rivalry are the enemies of communion. If you feel envious of someone, that drives you away from them, not toward them. Envy compares yourself to them and, and notes the differences, the other's perceived advantages, not what draws you together or what you have in common. Billy Graham once said, envy can ruin reputations, split churches, and cause murders. Envy can shrink our circle of friends, ruin our business, and dwarf our souls. I've seen hundreds cursed by it. Or when Lutzer notes, envy is a rebellion against God's leading in the lives of his children. It's saying that God has no right to bless someone else more than you. There's a danger of the world's competitive spirit filtering into even the hearts of Christian workers, pastors and preachers and writers who become envious of another's success. Gordon MacDonald writes about this. Citing a passage from Henri Nouwen, he describes an actor who noticed the terrible hypocrisy of his compatriots during a particular play in which he had a role. While rehearsing the most moving scenes of love, tenderness, and intimacy, the actors were so jealous of each other and so apprehensive about their chances of making it that the backstage scene was one of hatred, harshness, and mutual suspicion. Those who kissed each other on the stage were tempted to hit each other behind it, and those who displayed such love before an audience felt nothing but hostile rivalry as soon as the footlights were dimmed. Today we begin a several-week series looking at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. At the outset, it seems Paul has every right to be angry, upset, and envious of others. After all, he's stuck under house arrest in Rome, chained to a soldier night and day while others are free to come and go. In fact, some other Christians are even preaching with ulterior motives to make things worse for Paul or to draw a bigger following than him as if it's a competition. They're in it for selfish reasons. 
But instead of becoming envious, Paul is able to maintain an attitude that's joyful and not bitter. How? He's ever conscious of sharing in grace with the churches he's planted. On this Worldwide Communion Sunday, we note he shares a deep oneness or commonality with other Christian believers. Philippians 1.5 says, Because of your partnership in the gospel, I think I missed one there. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, the word translated partnership in the original Greek is koinonia, partnership, fellowship, a commonality. Again in verse 7b, For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. To share with is to a single compound word with the same root as partnership or koinonia, sharing together in God's grace. In this passage, grace is not seen not so much as just the usual meaning of forgiveness for our sins on account of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Grace goes beyond redemption to sanctification, our growth as a follower of Jesus, and can be unpacked in five ways. Joy, strength, affection, purpose, and fruitfulness. First, uh, joy despite chains. It seems Paul can't mention joy often enough in this letter. Even though he's stuck under house arrest, he refers to joys in some form 15 times in his letter, at least twice in each chapter. Here we find it in three places. Verse 4, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippian church has once again sent their missionary, Paul, a financial gift to help meet his needs. So, of course, that would be encouraging for him. Verse 18b, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul's keen hope to see the message about Jesus spread is being realized, even if it's not by him. And even if the motives of the preachers are not completely unselfish. To hear that Christ is preached gives him joy. In verse 26, he mentions how being together again in future, hopefully with the Philippians, would cause their joy in Christ Jesus to overflow on account of him. Knowing they're supportive of his ministry and wanting to see him again would help Paul to rejoice. Now, Paul was in house arrest, locked up, not free to move about. This past week, we've seen COVID daily new case numbers in Ontario rise and wonder if we're headed for another lockdown given this second wave of infection. It's been most of a year since it began in mid-March, six and a half months, and it can wear us down. Nerves are getting frayed. People are getting grumpy. Anybody notice that in your household? We just want it all to be over, but that's not likely to happen soon. Can we find joy in Jesus the way Paul did, despite confinement? Is contact with fellow believers made even more precious by the limitations on handshakes and hugging and being able to meet and worship freely together? Paul and the Philippians couldn't get together, but they used what means they could. The church sent a messenger, Epaphroditus, 
Paul sent a letter in return. We can still have joy from fellowship with other Christians, whatever the arrangement creatively worked out. Another aspect of grace besides joy that Paul's reveling in is God's strength. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work. That's God he's talking about, saving the believers. That day, a good work began in those who put their trust in Christ. A good work, that Paul says, will be carried on by the Lord to completion when Jesus returns. Your sanctification, your being made holier, more like Jesus, is work. It's an effort that the Holy Spirit's making in you day by day. It doesn't stop at once saved, always saved. God is ever urging you on and growing more mature, more filled with the outflow of his Spirit. God's strength is at work in you. See also verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, help given by hmm? oh, the Holy Spirit, here interestingly connected more with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Paul perceives God's strength as helping move events toward his deliverance. We think he was released from this house arrest before a final missionary tour visiting the churches. God gives his people strength in the face of challenges. Isaiah 41.10 So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It has been a challenging couple of weeks for students and teachers getting back to school. Many are facing new circumstances, different classes, new facilities, new modes of learning such as all online, new devices. What's a Chromebook? New operating systems to catch on to, it can be quite overwhelming. There have been more than a few tears. There have been some bloodshot eyes from staring at a screen all day or somebody looking like a zombie at the end of the day. But keep trusting the Lord and he will help you through the challenge. You will even grow in your skills and your confidence. When Paul was preaching at Philippi at first, see Acts 16, God's power had become very evident. They cast a fortune-telling spirit out of a slave girl, so she was freed of having to do that for her owners. A riot ensued, and Paul and Silas were stripped, beaten, and thrown into prison. That night, God used a violent earthquake to bust prison doors open, and the prisoners' chains were loosed. So Paul and Silas didn't run off, but stopped the jailer from killing himself, and led him and his household to become Christ followers. So God's power had been very evident to Paul and the people in Philippi. Many miles separated Paul under arrest in Rome from the believers back at Philippi in Macedonia. But even though the distance was great, the hearts were nonetheless fonder. God puts an affection for each other in their hearts. We see here some of the most tender language in the whole Bible. Verse 7a. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. New Living Translation, you have a special place in my heart. Aww. And verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Living Translation puts it, God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is a man talking? Yes, guys, it's all right to be genuine in expressing your affection without being afraid you'll be criticized for being mushy. Say it now, say it often, before it's too late and you wish you'd said it more. Paul is careful to point out it's the affection of Christ Jesus, not just plain human emotions. Affectionate feelings can be God-given, godly, and with sanctified motivation, if they're good and appropriate. This past week, the death toll due to coronavirus in the U.S. passed a grim milestone, the 200,000 mark. COVID-19 can be a deadly disease, and any proven vaccine is still a ways off, though advances are being made. This whole pandemic challenges our Western confidence in our own invulnerability, bolstered by wealth and hospitals and medicine and pharmaceuticals. Life suddenly seems fragile again, something we need to take pains to protect. We find ourselves deciding whether or not to go somewhere, evaluating the risk. Can the pandemic persuade us to be more affectionate, more expressive toward those we love if life is fragile? Can it prompt families to be more intentional about spending time together, turning off the screens and enjoying some healthy, fun bonding activities together? Yes, our gatherings in society need to be physically distanced for now, but that doesn't mean affection cannot be expressed intentionally, verbally. Do those you care about truly know how much they mean to you? Tell them. Show them. It must have seen to Paul his ministry plans to take the gospel message far and wide had suddenly been put on hold being in the lockdown of house arrest. But he's nonplussed. His sense of purpose comes through loud and clear despite the unexpected change in circumstances. Instead of audiences in the marketplaces, Paul realized he had a captive audience in the soldiers rotating watch on him and as he notes in 112. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul was in chains. God's word was not. Paul's purposes were still finding an outlet in whoever happened to be next to him. For many in our society, living for comfort and pleasure would sum up their purpose in life, their chief goal. But as we read through this chapter, we find several clues as to Paul's main purpose in life. For example, verse 11 talks about being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. For a Christian, we want to live in a way that brings God praise and glory, makes God look good, makes God attractive to those around us. Verse 13 I am in chains for Christ. Paul wasn't just locked up. He was locked up for a reason. Not on account of any crime, but on account of broadcasting the good news about Jesus. He saw his own afflictions as an extension of Christ's afflictions. See Colossians 1.24. While he's in custody, various people are preaching the gospel. Some out of pure motives, others out of selfish motives or to kind of undermine Paul. He could have gotten really upset at this. 
But what helps Paul keep his cool despite others' attacks? Verse 18, he says, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. What's most important for Paul? His reputation? Getting out of jail? Having his accusers silenced? No. The important thing is that from whatever motives, Christ is preached. Jesus is his reason for being. Again in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Exalting Christ, magnifying him, making him great, mega. And that's even an awesome thought, sheer grace. That we can conceive of Christ being exalted in my body by the way I conduct myself, bear up, serve God and others. For Paul, it's going to happen whether he lives or dies, which way is, in some respects, irrelevant. Verse 21 sums it up. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See how believing in Jesus shapes the purpose of Paul's whole life. To live is Christ. That's who he's living for. To die would be even better, for then he would, verse 23, depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Literally, very much better. The highest superlative. Paul's reason for living was all wrapped up in Jesus' death and resurrection for him and Jesus' call upon Paul's life. This provided Paul with a sense of purpose that gave meaning to his existence, even in the worst suffering. Paul was writing to those in Philippi, which was a Roman colony, where much of the population consisted of retired military men who had been given land in the vicinity. Canada's population is seeing a squaring of the triangle, where relatively more people are retired compared to the youngest segment. But for some retirees, life revolves around going to the coffee shop, buying lottery tickets, spending an afternoon on the golf course, and watching sports or a show in the evening. We're just idling time away until we die, if that's our daily pattern. There's got to be more to life than that. Find your purpose in living through Jesus, who gave his life to save you for himself and his kingdom enterprise. Last, Paul experienced God's grace at work in his life, making him fruitful. Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi in verse 11 is that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The Living Translation, filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. What's the fruit of righteousness look like? Back up to verse 10, part of it is to be pure and blameless. One of my heroes in defending the faith through apologetics was Ravi Zacharias, who died not long ago. Then this past week, allegations have come forward from three women who worked at a spa in which he was part owner regarding unwanted touching and advances and other immoral behavior. If true, these allegations are so disappointing. It's a fight for even the most well-known Christian leaders to stay pure and blameless. Be on guard. The devil prowls around and would love to eat you for lunch. 
1 Peter 5, 8. So there is the fruit of righteousness, righteous character that Jesus produces in us with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Another form of fruitfulness is found in verse 22. It says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul's commissioned field of labor was spreading the gospel, caring for the churches he planted, training up evangelists and pastors and elders to carry on after he was gone. And he's very conscious of the Philippians' partnership in this fruitful labor. Verse 5 says, Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is glad that this work is going ahead even if he's temporarily sidelined through house arrest. Verse 14, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Speaking God's word is going to take more courage for us as society increasingly chafes at the boundaries set forth by the Christian worldview. Although those very boundaries are meant by the Lord for our own protection in our relationships and in future judgment of sin. In verse 16, Paul sees himself put here for the defense of the gospel. That's now his life work. And it resulted not just in churches being planted, but here we are reading about it and being edified by him today through Scripture, this sacred deposit of God's truth guarded and transmitted down through the centuries. One more aspect of fruitfulness is found in verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. New Living Translation. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you'll keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. Picture is kind of like uh, the, the love is pouring in amongst these two riverbanks of knowledge and understanding. The love has its channel. The verb is abounding, literally overflowing. Does that describe how much love is issuing forth from our lives? Robertson's word pictures renders it may keep on flowing a perpetual flood of love. You remember in, in Wingham, when you're driving into Wingham on uh, number four, and the flooding in the springtime out covers that whole area just before you get into the Highway 86. That's got to be grace. The, the Holy Spirit's work in our life, this flood of love, because in our original sin-fallen, self-preoccupied, evil-infected state, it would never happen. But let God turn on the tap of his love in your life and let it spread to others. When you don't feel loving, repent. Yield it to him. Wait for him to flood your heart. Be praying who the neighbor is, the, the person near you that he wants to touch through you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 8. As we prepare now to take communion, even if it's a bit strange not being able to physically pass the trays and so on, we are reminded how we are partners in grace, sharing together in the richness of love that Jesus has for us. God's love demonstrated through the cross. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a sharing in grace that ought to be happening on the horizontal level as well as vertically. We see this deep bond between Paul and the church he's writing to that has been supporting him so faithfully by their gifts. P. 
people's New Testament comments. The Philippians sympathized with him, prayed for him, and sustained him by their offerings, thus becoming partakers. The apostle could tell they were one in supporting his missionary endeavors. The bread and cup and communion are symbols pointing us to a greater reality, the cross of Jesus, where he poured out his life to bring us to himself, to purchase us for a loving and holy Heavenly Father. Remembering his sacrifice helps encourage us in difficult circumstances and gives us grace to forgive and bear with other people even when they disappoint or hurt us. A man in Dundee, Scotland, was confined to bed for 40 years, having broken his neck in a fall at age 15. But his spirit remained unbroken, and his cheer and courage so inspired people that he enjoyed a constant stream of guests. One day a visitor asked him, Doesn't Satan ever tempt you to doubt God? The man replied, Oh yes, he does try to tempt me. I lie here and see my old schoolmates driving along in their carriages, and Satan whispers, If God is so good, why does he keep you here all these years? Why did he permit your neck to be broken? The guest asked, what do you do when Satan whispers those things? The invalid replied, ah, I take him to Calvary, show him Christ and point to those deep wounds and say, you see, he does love me. And Satan has no answer to that. He flees every time. Let us pray. Precious God, thank you for beginning your good work in us, a work you are carrying on until it's complete when Jesus returns. Thank you for your grace in both forgiving our sins and giving us purpose and fruitful labor in this life. Grant us courage to keep testifying about this wonderful grace. Fill us with your joy and strength to carry on. Deepen our affection for one another as your love overflows into our lives by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.